as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English will be on the screen. Derpå sagde Gud, det er ikke godt for Adam at være alene. Jeg vil give ham en livsledsager, der passer til ham. Gud havde af jorden formet alle slags dyr og fugle. Dem førte han nu hen til Adam for at se, hvad han ville kalde dem, og hvad Adam kaldte dem, blev deres navn. Adam navngav alle fuglene og de vilde og tamme dyr, men han fandt ikke nogen passende ledsager i blandt dem. Derfor lod Gud Adam falde i en dyb søvn. Mens han sov, tog Gud et af hans ribben og lukkede stedet igen med kød. Af ribbenet byggede han en kvinde og førte hende hen til Adam. Ja, udbrød Adam. Det er knogler af mine knogler og kød af mit kød. Hun skal hedde kvinde, for hun er taget ud af manden. Derfor skal en mand forlade sin far og mor og knytte sig nært til sin kone, og de to skal blive et. Adam og hans kone var begge nøgne, men de skammede sig ikke over deres nøgenhed. Um, we are uh, into our Genesis sermon series right now. Uh, we're in chapter 2. We've been uh, doing about three weeks in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to slightly pick up the speed, uh, doing about a chapter of Sunday for the next handful of Sundays through uh, the season of Advent. And then we'll really pick up the speed. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing about two to three chapters uh, a Sunday to get through the entire book of Genesis, especially by uh, summer. And that will be the goal before we switch back to our summer in the summer. Series. Uh, before we get into Genesis 2, uh, the, the narration, the story of the garden, let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you have gathered this people because your spirit is at work. Your son has risen from the dead and he continues to be amongst his people, the church, and continues to work among this neighborhood, these campuses and through every uh, place throughout the globe, globe, Lord, you are at work, restoring all things, awakening dead faith, bringing people to yourself. And this place, this sanctuary, is a small testimony to that continued work. So we're here now, Lord, to listen to your word, to hear your voice, to be transformed by your power. Help us to hear it with our ears, to receive it with our hearts, and to... Um, apply it with our hands in our days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first uh, wedding ceremonies I ever performed, we were running through rehearsal, as we often do the night before, and a unique situation happened where this older woman, uh, who was a relative of the bride and the groom, came up to me uh, because she was in charge of the scripture reading. Uh, and the scripture reading that for this particular ceremony came from Genesis 2. A good portion of Genesis 2 was her assignment to read that, including the last couple verses uh, that are included in this uh, chapter. So she comes up to me and quietly asks, is it okay for me to read verse 24 out loud in church? Now, you might think that I have the whole Bible memorized in Greek and Latin. Uh, it's, it's, I have barely passages memorized in English. So I did not know what verse 24 was. I had to look it up. I flipped it into my Bible, read it out loud. This is verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and united to his wife, and they become uh, one flesh. 
Uh, and then later, it talks about right after that, uh, that they're naked and ashamed. And she didn't like that verse because she knew in the context of 24, 25, that this is about marriage, and there's also this verse about being naked, and she was wondering if that was okay to talk about such things in a church uh, context. So did I, I asked, did you mean the verse about being naked and not ashamed? And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one. Is that, is that okay to read that verse in church? And I responded with confidence, nothing in Scripture is unbiblical to read out loud in church, so you're good, you got the green light, uh, it's, just, it's just fine. And she walked away with a little bit more confidence since the pastor gave her the green light for the marriage uh, ceremony on such a scandalous verse in the Scriptures, right? Uh, and I thought about her a lot when studying the passage this week and what her uh, reaction to that verse was, being naked and not ashamed. Uh, she was a little shy and ashamed about that verse because you have uh, a depiction, a description of a man and a woman sitting around naked with no shame, and she thought she was drawing attention to a nudist colony, but it was more than that. There's theological significance of why that's such a, a wild thing to read in uh, the passage. It's, a, it's one of those things that I sympathized with how she thought about it because I think what she was expressing about the hesitation with that verse is that it's a wild verse when you're on this side of Eden. We have an experience as human beings that's nothing like the Garden of Eden, a place of perfection and peace and delight. And so when we read passages and verses about how it's described, including that one, we just can't wrap our minds around being so comfortable with yourself and feeling no sense of shame that this would even be an appropriate way to think, let alone maybe uh, describe such a thing in church. And I think that's what we all bring to this passage that we're about to study together today in Genesis 2 about the Garden of Eden, is this is a highly unrelatable passage for us because we have never experienced anything like this. We have always been on the outside of the garden as exiles. We've never experienced life within the garden. And so I want to use this sermon now to take us back to this garden, to this place called Eden, to try to even imagine it as if we haven't experienced it on this side of the garden, to try to, to try to wrap our minds around what it must have been like before sin had entered the world. And there's two scenes that will pop up in Genesis 2 uh, in this Garden of Eden. The first scene highlights the garden vocation, the calling of human beings within the garden. And then we, uh, the second scene in, the, in the Genesis 2 will be a garden marriage. And after reflecting on that and taking us back to Eden together, we'll conclude with uh, some reflections from the reality outside of the garden and how that feels to us. So let's look, first look at the garden vocation. Let's look, start with verse 4 together. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Verse 4 shifts from the creation story in chapter 1 that we have covered over the last couple of weeks, and that is focusing on God's creation, His care, uh, and, and this cosmic picture of God creating the entire universe, the heavens and the earth. And now this verse is pivoting to a new emphasis of God's creation of a garden and his care of humanity and his redemption of humanity uh, that is to come in the, the following chapters. So starting here in chapter 2 with this verse, there's a shift from cosmic creation to this more personal involvement of God 
with human beings. Verse 4 actually functions as a heading for more than just chapter 2. It's likely a heading for both the story of the garden, the fall in Genesis 3, and this continuing intensification of sin that happens as a result of uh, the fall in chapter 3 before we get to the flood narrative. So chapters 2 through 4 is really one united uh, account in the book of Genesis. And then you get to the setting in verse 5 through 6. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Verses 5 through 6 is setting up the, the, the setting of chapter 2, and in the setting there is no plants, and that's saying there's no uh, essential aspects of this place that sustain life. This is a, not a great place to sustain life. And so God provides. He provides by making streams that come up to produce these plants, to water the plants. And so now God is creating a setting where beings can now dwell in this place and their life can be sustained. And then you get into verse 7, the creation of man. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God now creates man. And the image is that of a potter forming man from clay, from the dust, but he also breathes into him his own breaths, a breath into the nostrils of this formed being, and the text describes it as the very breath of life which makes the man a living being. God is the source of all life, and man is not only of the earth, but he's also intimately connected to God because he has the breath of life from God in him. Then we have a description of Eden in verses 8 through 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God makes a home for the man. This place is called Eden, the Garden of Eden. And Eden is a word that means pleasure or delight. The garden is a delightful place. There's a detail in this text that says the garden is located in the east, and that's intentional. This is the first of many details in this passage that's not only describing a garden, but a sacred place. Uh, temples and sanctuaries and tabernacles in the Old Testament, that's often places that faced east because these are sacred places, places where God is, uh, is believed to have dwelt, dwelt among man. In verses 10 through 14, we won't read those verses, but they go on to describe Eden at the headwaters of a river that divides into four parts. And then there's all these places that are named in this section, and some of them are uh, known to uh, modern scholars, some of them are not, and they're debatable. But in general, they're all places that are known to be lush with water or resources like gold and precious stones. That's the description. And again, these descriptions of a place with lush water and precious stones are common descriptions of sacred places like temples. This is a garden sanctuary that's being described here because a temple is a place for God and this garden sanctuary is a place for God to dwell as well. The other description that's happening here is how God is continuing to provide and care for this place and the people that dwell there. He makes all kinds of trees to grow, beautiful and delightful trees 
that look good and they're delicious to eat. It's like, it's like going to a restaurant where not only the food is good, but the presentation is nice as well, right? This isn't fast food, you know, wrapped in wrappers and kind of thrown at you through a window in the drive-thru. This is the type of situation where not only are the things delightful to eat, but the presentation, the beauty of how it looks is also delightful to the eyes. That's how it, uh, the description of uh, the trees are unfolding. And right in the middle of this garden is something called the tree of life along with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. To understand the tree of life, you have to remember the planter of this tree is God. And God is life, the source of all life. And life in Scripture is comprehensive in nature. It's not just about uh, experiencing life in the sense that I'm alive and not dead. Life is something that is a comprehensive experience in uh, the Scriptures. Life is also about uh, living righteously, feeling filled and, and, and having a sense of fulfillment in life and all are experiencing healing and wholeness. This is all experiences and descriptions of what it means to be alive in Scripture and to have life. And so God plants the tree in the garden because he gives and provides life in this comprehensive sense to, to man that has been placed in the garden. And now you also have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a tree that God provides in the garden to set up ethical awareness. And once we get to verse 16, I'll unpack what I mean by that in a little bit. But for right now, the point of these verses is to set up this delightful place called Eden, which is a garden temple, a garden sanctuary where man and God dwell together in harmony and peace in this place. It's fascinating because elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, Eden is sometimes described as not only the garden of God, this comes from language from Ezekiel, the garden of God, but also the mount of God, the mountain of God. And in the Old Testament, that's significant because mountains are typically places where the earthly world mixes it up a little bit with the heavenly realm. And that's exactly what Eden is. It's not merely a place of earth, but a place where heaven and earth meet. That's Eden. It's a place where humans and heavenly beings are interacting like it's just completely normal. Because back then, in this place, it is normal for the heavenly beings and for God to interact with human beings. It's meant to be normal, is the way we should be thinking about it. It's, it's more normal than anything ought to be. This is a place where men and women walk intimately with God in this garden sanctuary. And then God gives this command in verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Again, this language of work and take care take on not only this imagery of what it's like to care for a garden, you work and take care of a garden, but that language, those commands are also used in the Old Testament for priests. Priests are to work and take care of sanctuaries and temples and other sacred places. You can see that in the book of Numbers especially. And, and one of the purposes of, of what that looks like to work and take care of a sanctuary as a priest means that you are ensuring that this is a place where the presence of God resides, that God's presence stays here, and that, that other people now can benefit from being invited into this sanctuary to benefit and flourish within the, the 
presence of God. And so the priest's job is to be a, a guard and a person that ensures that that takes place. And so that's the task that Adam is given, is to be a priest of this garden sanctuary. And then the Lord God gives this command. You can eat anything except this one tree. And that tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God adds the consequence of eating from this tree. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is like a parent talking to a kid. You touch the stove, you're going to get burned. You eat from this tree, the consequences of it is that you will certainly die. I'm not kidding. That's what is happening here is is kind of how the, the Father God of the universe is communicating to Adam. Now the man is aware of ethics because of God's command. To eat of this tree is disobeying God's word. It's turning away from the giver of life. God is the source of life and he's also the one who knows good and evil. And that determination and that knowledge belongs to God alone. And It's not having faith in God's knowledge of good and evil, but acting like we know better that would cause somebody to take from this tree because you are saying, I, God, want to determine what good and evil is. I am not having faith in your determination and your command and your word. So if Adam turns away from this uh, command of righteousness, this pathway of life, through disobedience, then he turns to a path of unrighteousness and death. And death, again, here is not just this physical consequence that happens, but death is comprehensive in the Scripture. It's the description of our experience of drifting away from God and towards unrighteousness and brokenness and that experience of human life. So here we have the garden sanctuary with the vocation uh, given to man that you are to be a priest of this sanctuary to ensure that it flourishes, it's a place of beauty and delight, and that my presence dwells here. And now you invite other people into this garden sanctuary to uh, enjoy this presence. But there's an issue. Adam can't do this alone. And now we pivot to the next scene in chapter 2, the garden marriage. Look at verse 18 with me. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now in previous sermons, I've highlighted how this verse talks about that we as human beings are made for community. We're made for relationships. It's not good for us to be alone. Here in this this verse, in in the context of this passage, I want to lean into more of that word helper. What does it mean that uh, this woman, Eve, is being created because Adam needs a helper suitable for him? That's what the passage says. This is uh, one of those words that I think modern people get tripped up over a little bit. Helper. What does that mean, especially as a title for this woman, that she is a helper? And often I think we impose our own experiences and our own idea of what that means into the passage, and as a result, we often miss the beauty of what's happening here in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, the woman is called a helper, and the man is given the task of a priest, meaning that the man cannot accomplish this calling from God alone. He needs help. In fact, it's impossible for him to accomplish God's task for him without help. I think modern people think about like helper maybe and maybe like framed as like our experience in the marketplace where say you're helping somebody or you're helping somebody that's superior to you. It's like the, you know, the administrator is helping the CEO or something like that. This tend to be what we import into this passage instead of reading what the word helper means throughout the Old and New Testament. 
It means something very different than that modern way of looking at it. In the Old Testament, Israel needed help as well. Israel had a task to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to the world, where they could see Israel as a place that has been chosen by God and they get to experience his presence amongst that people. And then the the nations are invited into that. That was their mission. But Israel could not accomplish that mission by themselves either. They needed help. They needed a helper. And do you know in the Old Testament who is called a helper for Israel? It's God. God is Israel's helper. God is the one that has to come with his power to come and help Israel because Israel is incapable of accomplishing God's mission without help. You can even go to the New Testament that, uh, depending on the translation, the Holy Spirit is called an advocate or a helper because, again, the church cannot accomplish her mission by herself, needs help. And that help is the divine help of the Holy Spirit. So wouldn't it be odd to import this maybe marketplace framework onto God who's called a helper? That doesn't mean inferior or insufficient or that it's the weaker party coming along to chip in. This is an essential partner to the mission of God in the world in such a way and such importance that if Eve doesn't step up to help, If women don't step up to help, the mission of God will not happen. It will fail. That's the entire purpose of that title is to to make clear that men and women need to unite in the calling that God has for them together. And that's why both are needed today in the church. And churches are at their healthiest where men and women are not pitted against each other, but acknowledge that we all have unique gifts and a distinctiveness to bring to the mission of God. And if either one of us just think to ourselves like, ah, oh, like the other, the other, the other gender, they, they're the ones that need to do it. I can just step back. That's one of the things that weakens the mission of God in the world because we need to unite together, both together, to execute this calling of God in the world to redeem the world and to restore the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk to my sisters a little bit, just in case you haven't heard that as strongly as you have maybe in other church contexts. This church mission, not just this local church, I'm talking global church, will fail unless you step up and help the brothers. All right? That's what the passage is saying, and that's what we need to implement in a church culture. A church culture is always at its healthiest, where we acknowledge the distinct and unique gifts that men and women bring to the table, and we unite together, affirming the importance that we all need to step up together to accomplish the work of God in our midst. Yet there's a more specific application going on here than just a general application to the people of God and maybe to the church. In a more specific way, what is also happening here is a wedding in this garden sanctuary. You can see that starting to set up here in verses 19 to 20. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its names. So the the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Since God has given Adam responsibility in this garden, he has given the task 
of naming all these wild animals and birds. It's one of the ways of God delegating some authority to Adam to, uh, to name these beings. Now, there's a couple of things that are happening in this detail in the passage. Uh, one thing, and this is one of the ways I have thought of like how... Uh, how this has worked in my own house, in my, uh, my own experience, when I've delegated a task to my kids of naming, uh, like pets or stuffed animals or anything like that. You ever had one of these experiences to see what kids come up with for names? I had one, came, one kid that named a uh, baby doll, not even like a tangible word, but a sound. It was blah, blah, blah. What's the name of your doll? Blah, 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 blah. That was one of the names, and it stuck. That was the name of the baby doll. I had another kid that had a stuffed beaver that, that wore blue overalls and a blue hat. I think he had a backpack on, too. That uh, animal, stuffed animal's name was Francesca. Love it. I love That was one of my favorite ones. Francesca once went with us to a trip to New York City. I was trying to convince my daughter who named her that, that, uh, that, uh, that I should set up an Instagram account. We'll just take pictures of her, you know, in Central Park or whatever, and that's Francesca. She didn't go for it. She thought that was embarrassing. I had another kid that had a little white stuffed cat. That cat's name was Tippy Cat. All right, and we have, uh, some of you guys do like maybe the elf on the shelf thing. We have two so that, you know, the elf has a companion, a uh, buddy. Uh, and so I have another child that named our two elves, uh, Stefika and Steven. That's what their names were. I don't know, I haven't heard of Stefika before, but I'm pretty sure it's made up. And I wonder, like when I was reading this passage, you know, the task of delegating, like God couldn't name these beings, right? He gave, he's like, all right, I'm going to give you dominion over this call. You're going to make the call. You're going you're to name these beings. And I wonder, like God, you know, being infinite in wisdom was just like, you know, not what I would have named them, but let's go with it. I gave you the task, right? That's one of the things that's going on. Adam is naming these beings that God had made. The other important detail here is that God brings each of these living creatures before the man, but there's no suitable companion to help Adam accomplish God's vocation to him. That's the other detail. God knows that there is not a suitable companion for him, but Adam didn't until now. And as he saw all that had been made, he had realized that there is no one here that can help me accomplish this task that God had just had given me. And so now Adam knows that he needs a helper still as well. And so then we get into the creation of woman, verse 21 to 24. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed it up in the play, up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So God makes the woman. A woman, not multiple women, but a woman for man's rib. And Adam, this is an important detail, is not involved in this. He's sleeping. He's, he's out. He's not involved. He has no uh, uh, opinion or he's not participating over this project. God alone and his hand is making her. Woman is a special creation from the hand of the Lord. Yet she is not created separately from the man, and that's another important detail. She is of the same substance and source Man and woman are therefore united and not separate. And you ever wonder this, why this body part? Why from the side or why the rib? Why wasn't it another 
body parts. And I think this is one of those times that it's good to exercise like some theological caution. Don't read too much into it. Most theologians and people that write about this say we don't know for sure. But it is interesting reading from the church fathers to even some modern commentators that at least when people have meditated on it, they've had some similar reflections on what it could mean. And if you read some of these sources, I'm going to paraphrase a bunch of different sources here together, it usually sounds something like this about why the rib and not another body part. And it's something like this, that she's taken, she is not taken from the head to be above him or from his foot to be below him, but from his side to be united with him and to be near his heart because she is beloved. So whatever it is, it's got to have that type of sense. United, side by side, beloved of God and of man, that's the imagery of what's happening here. Not two separate beings, not one better than the other, united of the same substance, loved by God, and are to be drawn together in the vocation of not only taking care of the garden sanctuary, but as it's setting up here, the context is now getting at the institution of marriage. You see that especially with verse 24 there. That is man, man and woman who are leaving father and mother to unite together and become one flesh. And that's what starts to happen here, is this wedding ceremony starts to play out. This comprehensive union and one flesh. And a wedding that you know is about to happen, it's really fascinating reading this passage as a wedding ceremony because who is it that is the attendant that brings the woman to the man, that walks her down the sanctuary, idol, uh, sanctuary aisle in this garden. It's God. God walks her down and presents her to the man. And that's when the man erupts into a poem. And, and, and just this poem that's affirming her and her worth. It's, it's one of those like, most old school things to do. Man, if you're wondering... You know, you're trying to find a date, you're trying to do something a little different in the household, maybe take some tips from the oldest pickup line known to man, write some poetry. I've never done it before, so I guess that means I'm a little unbiblical. Well, maybe give it a shot, fellas, right? If, 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 something, if, if you need something new in your arsenal, right? The poem here that erupts from the man that's affirming her, that says that you are, 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 are of infinite worth because of your creator and who he made you to be. And it's one of those things, as I was reflecting on this, like it's, it's good not to read too much gender-specific applications into Genesis 2. I think the emphasis is more on what we share and unite together than, uh, rather than the distinctiveness and what are, is different about us. Uh, that's there, but I don't think that's the main emphasis of this passage. But I do want to give maybe a couple charges to the brothers in this room in light of this passage. And the first thing I would want to say is that in this world of paradise and peace, where there is no sin, the first thing a man says to a woman in this poem is what? What is the content of it? It's affirming of who she is. It's recognizing her worth. And sometimes we might get overcomplicated of what maybe masculinity is or maybe what holy masculinity could be. But I think one principle that I would like to draw from this narration, this, this, this story of the garden, is one of the marks of holy masculinity is to affirm the worth of women around you. And you know that you, are, you have a holy masculinity if the women around you, all the relationships, friendships, spouse, neighbors, that they are flourishing because of what you are recognizing in them who God created them to be. 
And the second thing is maybe more specific to husband. And I was thinking about that with that, that, that imagery of God presenting woman to man. And that this is happening during this, this wedding ceremony in the garden sanctuary. And I've done a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. And I've seen that scene, a lot of them in this room, of, of the grooms up here and the earthly father is walking her down. Usually it's this aisle to present his daughter to the groom. And I was thinking about those scenes that have, have just replayed in my mind uh, time and time again in light of that passage, in light of this passage, and thinking about how it's actually even more profound and more powerful to think about how God the Father is behind every woman in a situation like that. And how much better would our sanctification be as husbands if we recognized in that moment that there was more going on than an earthly father walking her down the aisle, but who really deeply cares about her, infinitely so, is the heavenly father that deeply cares about her flourishing within a marriage. And men need to have that type, of, that type of responsibility of the vocation of husband on their shoulders as they think about God's value that he places on all of his daughters in whatever vocation that they face. Verse 24, again, is what really drives home the emphasis that this is a garden wedding. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They leave families to unite to create a new family. This unity is describing a covenant relationship bound by a promise and a comprehensive union that has not only bodily but emotional and material and, and relational. It's a union where men and women become husband and wife and father and mother to any children their love makes. Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament, verse 24 uh, of Genesis chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians to make a point about the mysterious purpose of marriage that's not explicitly revealed if you're just reading Genesis 2. Ephesians 5.32 says this is a profound mystery that is this, this, this wedding happening in Eden. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see, in the Christian faith, marriage has this mysterious purpose that has been revealed in Christ and the gospel. That marriage points beyond itself as a vocation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The marriage relationship is evangelistic. It proselytizes the world even if you don't use words. It shows in tangible ways in this relationship between husband and wife, the self-giving and sacrifice of Christ and the response to that sacrifice by the church. And that is what the world sees in Christian marriage, sacrificial giving of a husband and a wife to one another in mutual love. Now, one of the things now that we've seen these two scenes of this vocation of the garden and this garden wedding is again to go back to this point that I opened up with, that we look into this garden from a different experience. And that last verse, again, sums it up really well, Genesis uh, uh, 2.25, Adam and Eve or Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Naked and without shame. That is a description that's hard for us to relate to on the other side of the garden. That's a description of openness and trust. Why? Because there's no threat of sin in this place. There's no unrighteousness. There's no worry about abuse or violence. There's no concern about careless words or sharp criticism. There's no experience of loneliness or isolation. They're naked 
and without shame. That's what that imagery is getting at. And it's something that we cannot relate to on this side of Eden. Adam and Eve are at harmony with one another and with God in this garden sanctuary that is at perfect peace. They are at home where they belong. And we don't feel that because we are not in Eden anymore. That's one of the things I experienced studying this passage this week is this sense of lament that I cannot relate to this passage because none of us have experienced anything like this before that's being described in Genesis 2. We gather each week in this building having experienced the opposite of being naked and without shame. We need to hide ourselves and protect ourselves because it is rough out there. It's not a place of peace. So we put up barriers of mistrust and constantly feel threatened and lonely. We're not in a place of harmony and peace, but rather a place of chaos and division in our relationships, on our campuses, in our neighborhoods, throughout the world. That's the description of our place. It is not Eden. It is not a garden sanctuary. And things are not right, not only between us and our environment or us and one another, but things are not right between us and God. And as we'll find out next week, we can't go back to Eden. That's not the path home. Eden is protected from us going back there because of the fall. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ is making a way to something better than Eden through his death and resurrection. Jesus is making an even better garden sanctuary with a true and better wedding that's going to take place between him and his people. Let's go back to Revelation. I know it wasn't long when we were there, but the imagery is picked up there in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Here's the true and better wedding that the profound mystery of marriage points to. God is making all things new, and making a place where there's no more tears or crying or pain or death anymore. And this true and better wedding is taking place where God's dwelling place is with us and we with him. It's where we belong, not in a place in our experience where we are feeling naked and ashamed. And all this is taking place to be made into a new and better garden sanctuary. Let me read Revelation 22, 1 through 5 in light of going through Genesis 2 in so much detail. And see how much of that picture of the garden is picked up in the place that God is preparing for us in Christ. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever in that garden sanctuary. Brothers and sisters, we can't go back to Eden. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ did make a way back to a true and better garden sanctuary that waits us in that day.